Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. To go back to your question, what is this accomplishing? You're developing two faculties, developing a few faculties, but the, the two big ones are your ability, your stability of attention, right? this ability to put your attention where you want it and not have it immediately wander off. And then you're also developing this sort of mindful awareness of where is my attention right now? Am I with the breath or have I wandered off? Because at first what you're going to notice is your attention is going to wander off and you're not even going to realize that it's happened. And you're just going to think about lunch or you're going to think about a matter that you're working on or whatever the case may be. And then maybe only 30 seconds or a minute later, do you snap out of it and remember, oh yeah, the breath, right, right, right. <laughs> and then you bring yourself back. And that is the practice. It is a series of wanderings, noticings, and returns. It is a series of getting distracted, recognizing the presence of distraction. That is the magic moment. And then bringing yourself back. That's what it's going to look like. That's helpful for someone like me who's tried meditation and thought, wow, it's so hard to it's so hard to control my mind like it's a muscle and do nothing but one thing at a time. Yes. Why can't I clear my mind? I must be a bad meditator. I cannot tell you how often I hear that. And it's just an unfortunate and widespread misconception that if your mind is wandering, if your attention is getting pulled away, if there are thoughts and other things going on in your head, then you're not doing it right. And that's not true. You are doing it exactly right. All that stuff is going to be there. Distraction is going to happen. And every time you notice that distraction and bring yourself back, you should be happy that that happened because you just did a rep. <laughs> you just did a rep of the attention I like muscle. That. And yeah. one thing that lawyers are good at, it's discipline and putting together protocols. So have you found that lawyers as students are particularly challenging or, or are naturals? No, I, I think that they have strengths and weaknesses as, again, speaking very broadly. They have a number of strengths. One, as you said, they're disciplined, right? So if they commit to the practice, they will be tenacious. They will really work hard to, to cultivate a daily practice, to stick with it. They don't give up easily, which is really wonderful. We're used to doing things that are more tedious than this. True enough. <laughs> Uh, which mindfulness practice helps with, by the way, because it helps your ability to sustain your focus on something, even if, let's just keep it real, what you're looking at is kind of boring, right? <laughs> I've actually heard, uh, I've heard from a, a corporate attorney that she enjoys, by the way, she is brilliant and sophisticated and can do you know, the most high-end aspects of the deal, but she said she enjoys, almost in a mindfulness way, going through and looking for uh, typos in, in whether the font is wrong or whether there's th some spacing issues, yeah. but just, it, it's sort of like a mindless or a, a way to kind of clear her mind from the more important things. Yeah. Uh, because you have to be sort of tuned in, right? You have to be very present to do that. You can't sort of zonk out, uh, and be foggy to do that. So it requires a large some amount of, level sort of, of focus. moment yeah. focus, but it's also kind of engaging right? The breath is more boring than, than even that, right? <laughs> it's almost a little gamified to see like, oh, how many little mistakes can I spot, right? That sort of line editing. This is Helvetica and we don't use Helvetica. We only use 
Times New Roman. Yeah, that period was outside the parentheses when it should really be inside the parentheses in this particular instance, that sort of thing, right? But the breath is actually more boring than that. And there's a reason. We use a boring object like the breath on purpose because if the object itself is very engaging, then you're not really using your attentional muscle at all to stay focused on it, right? It would be very easy to engage your attention on an episode of Breaking Bad or something, exactly. right? That's easy. Whatever so, your, your binge-worthy Netflix show is. Yeah. So people have said to me, oh, you know, I find it easier to focus my attention on this or that or a piece of music. Can I use that instead? And my response is generally, well, do what you want, you know, but my recommendation would be that the fact that you find the breath a little more challenging because it's not inherently engaging mm. is reason, particular reason to use that, actually. If you want to train then objects like the breath are fantastic. So people will say to me things like, and by the way, these are totally valid things to say, you know, I find that running is my mindfulness practice or Mm. crochet is my mindfulness practice or things like that. You know, it really makes me very present. I don't get caught up in my thoughts. Am I sort of meditating? And to that I say yes and no, because it is bringing you into a mindful state. It is that you're experiencing mindfulness in that moment the activity is doing a lot of the work, right? So oh, interesting. So maybe the crochet is, is closer to this, this, uh, partner's, um, topography, uh, hunts. Whereas yeah, we're looking for something more basic in terms of mindfulness training. Right. Yeah. I, so I used to do a, a martial art called capoeira, a Brazilian mm-hmm. martial art. And, uh, what I would find is that when I was in class training and, you know, fighting and doing whatever we were doing in capoeira, my mind would be laser focused on the present moment. My mind would feel so crisp and clean and mindful. But if you weren't, you might catch a heel to your face. Well, that's true. And then as, exactly. And then as soon as I left back to my old self, right back to the torrent of, you know, thoughts about the past, thoughts about the future and getting sort of lost in that. Because what mindfulness practice does is the idea is that feeling that I had in Capoeira, that feeling that you have while you're editing your document or crocheting or surfing or whatever it is. Imagine if you feel that way while you're just walking down the street. Imagine if you feel that way while you're doing your taxes. In other words, you don't need some special activity to elicit that mode of being. It's just accessible to you. It becomes more and more your default, right? So that is why we practice. That is why we train so that your base level of mindfulness, when you're not doing this activity that is sort of your mindfulness practice, so that it's there for you, even in those more mundane moments. So let's talk about law school. Yeah. It's, and when you ask law students about their law school experience, there's almost inevitably a complaint that is almost like a brag. It, I have so much to do. I'm so, I'm working so hard. Yeah. It seems like fertile ground for, for mindfulness training. Are you teaching at law schools as well? Yeah, actually more and more, which is great. Um, I've taught at a few places. I, I, was fortunate enough to go do some programs at Harvard Law School and Yale Law School. And you're absolutely right. If I can, if I can teach this to folks before they get into law practice, obviously that's better, right? Than having, than being in the thick of it and already dealing with all this difficult stress, anxiety, burnout, and so forth. And then having to learn these practices in the midst of it, which is yeah, most of what I mean, I, I do, guess but, that's similar to what, you know, we've had conversations about addiction and alcoholism with other experts and they point to law school as perhaps the right moment to come in and start a healthy pattern before these individuals are actually practicing. For sure. And it's, it's kind of interesting because there's a sort of weird trajectory where when I teach law students, 
they're very receptive because they're so stressed. <laughs> and then when I teach first year associates, they are receptive, but there's a sense in which they don't know what they're in for yet. You know, so they're, they're at a fresh start at something new. They're excited. They're bright eyed and bushy tailed. And then when I teach mid-level associates or senior associates or partners, they're, they're back to being like, <laughs> okay, what have you got for me? Because yeah. I need something, you know? Yeah. I think there's, there's also a sort of growth curve in your ability to take on responsibility in law school. You think, how could I possibly be more busy? And then as a second or third year associate, you think, how could I have thought I was busy before? Yeah. And as you said, there is not just for law students, which you mentioned, but among lawyers too, maybe even more so, there is sometimes a perverse pride hmm. in being stressed. It's oh, a yeah. badge of honor. Oh, I mean, how many people uh, would tell you how few hours they slept uh, trying to outdo you? Mm -hmm. Well, I only slept three hours last night. Yeah. It is bizarre. And it, it, it does seem like, I don't think it's unique to lawyers, but it's definitely a lawyer thing and a law student thing. Well, for our audience, maybe you can, you can share some of your, your insight in a way that's specifically tailored to them. Yeah. Uh, what are some mindfulness techniques or tips that we can employ in our, you know, in our work days to make the lawyering experience more sustainable, more healthy, maybe even more effective? Yeah. So I think one thing is to meditate, right? So I, I put a lot of stress on that. It's really useful to have a formal meditation practice. Oh, it was not intended, but <laughs> haha. Um, but, you know, I do put emphasis, emphasis, if you will, on that because it's just super important. It's going to transform your mind and allow your uh, and, and produce a higher base level of mindfulness throughout the day. But that being said, I do think it's also important, even if, by the way, even if that's five minutes, two minutes, one minute that you just set aside to quietly watch your breath or do whatever. So it could be five is. minutes in the whole day or how do you, how do you build it in? Well, there is, so, so I'm just talking about formal practice right now. So, you know, I, every day, if you can just set aside a little time, maybe while you're still at home or it could be in your office too, to just quietly do a formal meditation practice. And that can really be any length of time. So the only bad length of time is zero minutes, <laughs> zero seconds. Anything more than that is, is good. Consistency is more important than duration, I always like to say. So I would rather you meditate for two minutes a day every day than two hours a day, but only four and days a week. there are nowadays plenty of, of apps and, and build-ons to you know your Amazon Alexa or iPhone Siri. You can ask for a meditation, two-minute meditation, three-minute meditation, five-minute meditation. Yep, there's more resources, more resources than there have ever been. But I also want to say that, yeah, in addition to formal practice, you want to find ways of integrating mindfulness into your daily life and into your workday. And I think what that means for a lawyer is you need to find a way to do this practice in bite-sized ways because sometimes all now you you're talking my language because well, yeah. you know, we, we have things to do. Sometimes all you have is 30 seconds between your last call and your next call. Right. And so you got to be able to do this in 30 seconds. You got to be able to do this in a minute. So I try and teach practices like that. So for instance, I can't really do them justice if we're just going to you yeah. know, briefly do it. But, you know, this sort of breath meditation, that classic breath practice is a totally portable practice. You could always just wherever you are, tune into the, the sensation of the breath at the nostrils and watch two breaths, three breaths, like a little micro hit of mindfulness. Right. So maybe right before you're about to walk into that meeting, take 30 seconds before you open the door. Exactly right. For yourself. 
And then, you know, there's a practice called walking meditation, also sometimes called mindful walking. And very briefly, what you're doing is you're bringing your attention to the sensation of the sensation in the soles of your feet mm. as you walk. So while you're walking, you feel your foot lift off the floor. You feel it swing forward. You feel it regain contact with the floor. So walking meditation is great because even though our profession is somewhat sedentary, we do walk from time to time, right? So yeah, whether it's to the coffee uh, or, or to the bathroom to or a colleague's to office. the next meeting. Yeah, exactly. And so those are opportunities where instead of ruminating, you can tune into that sensation and use that as an anchor to bring you into the present moment. Mindful walking is actually a very pleasant practice. It's really nice and grounding and stabilizing. Treating the breath practice as a portable practice and just watching the sensations of breathing for 20 seconds, 30 seconds, and then little bits of mindful walking. These are opportunities to sort of interweave mindfulness into your day. We're sitting here in, in Soho in New York City. Walking is, is a luxury that I am, you know, I, I'm lucky to have as a New Yorker walking around. Yeah. What about for our audience that's listening in commute heavy uh, areas, mm. you know, whether it's, it's California or, or Florida or New York or, or, or wherever in the country, yeah. are there techniques that you can use while you're driving or while you're on your daily commute? Yes, but you want to be careful there. So for instance, you don't want to laser focus in on your breath while you're driving because <laughs> you should probably be paying attention to your driving, but it's possible to drive mindfully. And I'm sure that you've had the experience uh, if you drive of driving somewhere. And then when you arrive at your destination, you realize that you have no memory of the drive. <laughs> How did I get here? Because you were just sort of daydreaming while you were driving. Or listening to an audiobook or. Yeah. Which is okay. Whatever it was that you're doing. Yeah. And that's fine, but it is possible to drive more mindfully. And what that means is if you want to drive mindfully, you don't want to use as narrow a focus as something like the breath or paying attention just to your foot on the gas pedal. That's no good, right? Driving is a complex process, a multi-partite process, and you have to be sort of paying attention holistically to the whole thing. So what you do instead is you bring your attention to the overall process of driving. You know, not just your hand on the wheel, but also your foot on the gas, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, the whole experience. Treat that as the anchor for your attention, and then there will be a tendency to drift off into daydreaming, into thoughts about what you're going to be doing when you get to where hmm. you're going. So once again, all you do is just notice that your attention has wandered. And then, you know, without condemning yourself for that, because it's not any sort of a mistake, it's what's supposed to happen. You just notice that. And then return. And then bring yourself back. In this case, to this broader focus of the experience of driving. Because even though it's a broader focus, it still is being out of your head, right? So that is how you can drive mindfully. That's great. It may even appeal to some of this, you know, misguided uh, multitasking brain that that many lawyers have, which is, oh, maybe I can get something out of this this driving experience, or maybe I can get something out of this walking experience, uh, even if it's not uh, traditional multitasking. No, that's a great way of looking at it. You can leverage more and more of your day in service of this very helpful mental training that will make you happier and make you more effective as a lawyer. So you're claiming, as you, as you get better at these practices and as you remember to spend a little more time in a bit of breath practice here and there, a bit of mindful walking here and there, you are claiming more and more territory for this useful practice. There's this piece of advice that they like to give in the Tibetan 
meditative tradition, which is a very old, very sophisticated tradition. They like to say short sessions many times. And to me, so that's a very valid way to practice. And to me, that is a very viable way for a lawyer so to practice. Even if you can't sit down and meditate for half an hour, 45 minutes, if you can get in those one to two minute sessions uh, multiple times throughout the day, you can have a very positive impact. Short sessions many times, absolutely. And you should never let the need to sort of be a hero and sit for a long length of time or practice for a long length of time to get in the way of your Although maybe that could be a a better uh, thing for law students to brag about how long they meditated rather than (laughs) how few hours they slept. Yeah. Are there any techniques that you would recommend, uh, you know, break in case of emergency? If if you get really terrible news or um, something doesn't go your way or um, the judge uh, makes a mistake and you're, you're, you're suffering the punishment of it. Yeah, actually. You want to, if you can, avoid unhelpful extremes that tend to happen in moments of acute stress or anxiety. So one extreme is you're going to flinch away from the experience that's happening. So what's going to happen is in your body, you're going to feel a bunch of stuff, right? You're going to feel that clench in your stomach, or you're going to feel your heart pounding. There's going to be a physiological response. And the tendency is to fight that response, to try and make it go away somehow, to push it down, to push it out, to distract yourself from it. We engage in what's called avoidance strategies. And that to is- To force that, that poker face or to force the outward calm. And not just to force the outward calm, but for your own sake, because it's unpleasant. Hmm. It's unpleasant to feel that way. And we naturally try to escape unpleasant experiences. Oh, so it's more like, I'm just closing that door and not going to think about it. So we have a couple of different ways of doing it. One way is that distract yourself, try not to think about it. Another way might be to dull yourself, right? Have a glass of wine or something or have a beer. Mm. Uh, Another one is to actually ruminate, right? And so that's the other unhelpful extreme. So one thing that we tend to do is we flinch away from the sometimes unpleasant experience in our bodies that happens when stress or anxiety comes up. The other unhelpful extreme is that we tend to dive into our thoughts, our mental stories. Why did he, why did he do that? Why, why did this happen? What could I have done differently? If I just said this instead of that, it's so natural to sort of replay this stuff on a loop and ruminate. And so what you want to do, the, the way to sort of short circuit and avoid those two unhelpful extremes is to deliberately tune into the experience you're having in your body. Now this seems counterintuitive because, well, John, you just said that you're having a very unpleasant experience in your body right now. But it turns out that the unpleasantness is actually not so bad. What really makes these experiences so awful sometimes, the stress, the anxiety, is the avoidance, Hmm. is the way that we flinch from it. So do you actually think, how is this making me feel right now? Yeah. So what you could do is you could just say, okay, I feel myself getting stressed. What sensations do I notice in my body right now? This is not a natural thing to do. You have to train yourself in this response. Okay, there's a a sort of tightness in my stomach. My hands are tingling. My face is hot. You pay attention to the sensations. And then if you start to get caught up in a thought, you notice that you're caught up in the story, then just like in meditation, you gently escort yourself back to the experience of what's going on in my body right now. Mm. So stay with the body. If you do that, you're not flinching away you're also not diving into the stories and ruminating. And one thing that helps with that, if you, that can be a little bit of a support to doing that, is what you might call a labeling practice. So what you do is you just sort of sit there or stand there or be wherever you are while you're going through the stressful experience. And whenever you notice 
a sensation in your body, label it feeling. Mm. In your head, say the word feeling. Whenever a thought comes up and you notice that thought, label it thinking. Hmm. So, in, so what happens is an anxious thought comes up, a stressed out thought comes up. Instead of falling into the story and starting to ruminate, you label it thinking, right? And so you thinking don't do that. And return back to feeling. And then, and then if, you, if, um, if an uncomfortable sensation in your body comes up, those butterflies in your stomach, that pounding heart, instead of flinching away from it, you just label it feeling. Right. So you could actually you could stay with the body as an anchor or you can just sit there and just whatever comes up, feeling or thought, just tag it, tag Mm. it, tag it, feeling, feeling, thinking, feeling. So is this something that you would do kind of after you left the room or can you do this in real time and and keep up, keep up to speed with what whatever practice you're engaged in? Yeah. So there are a couple of ways of doing of doing it. I would say that labeling might be tough when you're in the midst of it, but if you, but you can ground your attention a little more in your body. So if you notice you're starting to freak out, you can't stop listening to what's being said, right? If you're engaged in a negotiation or a conversation uh, or oral argument or whatever the case may be, you can't tune out to what's going on. So you can just shift a little bit more, a greater percentage of your attention to your body as a way to ground you because you are probably even while you're engaging with whoever you're talking to whoever's on the other side of the table you are unconsciously flinching away from the somatic physical experience and you might be unconsciously starting to engage some thoughts so it is useful to give a little bit more attention to ground you in the body to help avoid those extremes even while you're in the midst of a demanding cognitive activity like a conversation but you have to modulate it based on the situation you're based in, on, of course. Based on the ability that you can have to step back. There's a, there's a thing that I call the mindful mini pause, which is specifically for if you're getting a little stressed or anxious and you're in a conversation or you're on a call. Tell me, what's and the mini pause? So it's very quick. You take one breath. So you slow your breathing a tiny bit. So you take an inhale. You, you obviously are not in a position to sort of do while someone is staring at you or while you're on a call. So you just slow it a little bit, right? Just maybe when you're on a call, maybe, maybe while you're on a call, but you, you, as long as it's no video. Yeah. And as long as you keep it quiet, but you just slow your breathing a little bit on the inhale. And then on the exhale, give a little attention to your body. That's it. On the inhale, slow it down a little bit on the exhale. Give a little bit of attention to the sensations that you're noticing in your body. If it's just mundane sensations, like your butt on the chair or coolness or heat or the touch of your clothing, that's fine. If it's something that seems related to stress or anxiety, like a knot in your stomach or tingling in your hands, those are also good to pay attention to because those are the ones we tend to flinch away from. So slow your breathing a little bit on the in, tune into your body a little bit on the out. See where you are and and then go forward. That's a mindful mini pause. A quick pause for those listening for CLE credit. The code for this interview is 90101. Again, that's 90101. And now back to the interview. You mentioned a couple of other perhaps traditional responses to stress. Uh, One is turning to alcohol, is having a drink and using that as a way to kind of clear your mind a little bit. What are your thoughts and how does that 
relate to mindfulness? Well, my thoughts are that our profession is going through something of a, I don't want to say an epidemic, but we're having an issue right? and maybe have, have been having an issue for a really long time. So there was that 2016 study by the Hazleton Betty Ford Foundation that found, I think, depending on which statistical measurement you want to use, somewhere between a fifth and a third of lawyers. Too many. Too would many. be properly classified as problem drinkers. So I think this is a real issue. And I, and now, you know, of course, alcoholism is a disease. And I wouldn't just say, oh, just practice mindfulness. But I do find that mindfulness practice seems to help curb, to some degree, compulsive behavior. And there is research. There's a, a guy named Judson Brewer. Uh, a, I think he's a neuroscientist. And he's looking into how mindfulness can interact with efforts around smoking cessation and cessation mm. of other addictive behaviors. Physically addictive. Yeah. Sentences. So there's a real intersection there. And some of the things that drive us to dull our experience is a desire to escape from unpleasant experience, from discomfort, right? And there's a sense in which every second of our lives, we are chasing pleasant experiences fleeing unpleasant experiences, right? This is the ever-present sting of the human condition. <laughs> and mindfulness and, you know, the, the sort of uh, practices, you know, under this broad umbrella that we're calling mindfulness practice, what they're really aimed at above everything else is not being a little more focused, not being a little less stressed. Those are beneficial side effects. The real heart of the practice is about finding a different way to exist as a human being besides just forever chasing pleasant experiences, forever fleeing unpleasant experiences and hurting ourselves and others. So maybe living a more enlightened life is the big picture, but for many of us, some of these side effects could be goals in and of themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I'd like to be less stressed. I'd like to have lower blood pressure. I'd like to respond in a more thoughtful way to the stimulus around yeah. me. And those are, and also the reduced stress, the reduced anxiety, all those things are manifestations of this broader idea, right? Because as I was discussing, as we were discussing, why, how do we feed our anxiety? It's because anxiety comes up, it's uncomfortable, and then we fight it, we flee from it, and that makes it worse, right? We so try to dominate it. Yeah, or avoid it. And that's exactly what I'm talking about here. So mindfulness is trying to introduce you to this idea of, well, when something unpleasant comes up, what happens if you just enfold it in mindful awareness? What happens? Well, hmm. it turns out what happens is it takes a ton of the sting out of it. It deflates the actual stressor. Yeah. Or, or when, you're in, when you're having a good experience, instead of gripping onto it, like for instance, if you're enjoying a drink, instead of clinging to that experience and needing more, right? What would happen if you were to just enfold that in mindful awareness? Well, it turns out that you can enjoy it, but without that compulsiveness, hmm. right? So it's not in any way an escape from, you know, the vicissitudes of life. It's a way to be with them in a more skillful way. So there's a, there's a quote that I, I really like. I can't remember if it's from John Kabat-Zinn or Jack Kornfield, but it's from some eminent, one of those two eminent mindfulness teachers. He said something like, you can't stop the waves from coming but you can learn to surf. And that's really what it's about. Well, that's beautiful. So before you go, maybe you could opine, maybe you could, you could speak to the legal profession uh, 
and ways that we can improve or have better mindfulness. I guess, why don't we start with what are you, what do you see out there as innovative or, or helpful? And then we can talk about uh, other ideas that you may have. Yeah. So what I'm starting to see more and what I want to see more of is more of a holistic approach to employee well-being. And I don't mean holistic in the sort of incense and crystals sense. I mean more in the sense of addressing all the different facets of lawyer well-being and how the work that we do can impact that. You know, there are so many different dimensions of well-being. There's your physical well-being and your physical fitness. There's your emotional well-being. There's people are even talking about financial well-being and how that is tied into, you know, if you're having issues there, right, or if you're struggling, then that's going to affect everything else about, you know, how you're able to live your life, um, social well-being and so on and so forth. And so, you know, firms are starting to look at things like, you know, do we have alcohol at all of our events and mixers and recruiting events and, and retreats and so forth? You know, how can we encourage physical fitness? Yeah. How can we encourage mindfulness practice? And I do think that you want to look across the board at all the different dimensions. So, you know, I'm the mindfulness guy, but if you're just hiring me, having me come in and do a mindfulness workshop, and then you feel like, oh, we got the wellness, well-being thing covered, that's not enough. It really isn't. Maybe I'm speaking against my own interest <laughs> here, but I really believe that. You know, you have to look at all these different dimensions. And so the ABA, the American Bar Association, has done some good work here. There's an attorney well-being committee that I actually participate in that is making available tons of resources, including online, about what the different dimensions of well-being are and dozens of different ideas for how law firms and other organizations can be more comprehensive in addressing these things. Are you optimistic? Do you see the small benefits of adding a little bit more mindfulness into a profession as significant? Or are we, are we on the precipice of a, of a different type of mm. pandemic that we were discussing with uh, problem drinking when it comes to problem stressing? I am optimistic because over the years that I've been doing this, I have seen changes. So I've seen it come, I've seen it shift from more of a check the box mentality of sort of, you know, bring in a well-being speaker. Now we've done our part to much more comprehensive programs. And that shift has really been remarkable to see. The, the ABA created a well-being pledge. And obviously just signing a pledge means nothing unless you actually do it. But more and more law firms and other legal employers are signing that pledge. And as far as I can see, actually doing stuff, which matters. You know, I've seen incredible things. There's, there's one firm where they allowed the lawyers to bill time spent doing mindfulness practice. That's a concrete step. I yeah, mean, that, because the lawyers are feeling the pressure to take care. They're, they're billing enough. They're accounting for their time. Yeah, I was blown away, actually. And it was, you know, there was a cap on how many hours you could bill, but it was a pretty, I don't remember the exact number, but it was a pretty healthy number. I was really impressed by that. There's a firm that has, you know, this is on a completely different axis of well-being, but it's kind of interesting. There was a firm that had ergonomics experts come to every office and set it up so that you're not getting lower back pain and things like that. Oh, that's um, helpful. Yes, though also not being in that chair for 15 <laughs> hours a day it would also be nice, yeah, but I mean, we do is, what we can. Is it possible to live a balanced life and bill 50, 70 hours a week? I don't think you can go on like that indefinitely. I don't think you could have week after week like that. It's tricky for me because I can only do what I can, what I can do, right? As someone who goes in and teaches what I know how to teach. 
But I really, really do want to see large systemic changes at law firms. And I do want to stress that it's a bandaid on a bullet wound to just bring in a speaker every now and then. The profession needs to shoulder some of this responsibility. And I think and hope that it is. I think as we're becoming more and more aware of the role that stress plays in our lives, uh, inevitably, uh, techniques and strategies to, to deal with it will also become more and more prevalent. Yeah. And, and that's why you know, some of what you're doing is so important. Uh, John Krupp, thank you for joining us today and sharing your insights. Thank you for having me. For more Legal Explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.